0: Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. I want to thank you for joining me. I am so glad to share this time with you today. At Valley View Friends Church, we are learning how to live as God's people, concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. I want to encourage you to subscribe to always get the next podcast. Now let's turn our attention to this week's message. Well, there's a joke that goes like this. The setting is at a university lecture hall filled with several hundred students. It's one of those very large, large classes that the bigger universities have. And they're taking a calculus final. Apparently, this particular calculus professor wasn't very well liked. He was one of those... Uh, Personalities that would stand in the front of a classroom and, and yell out how much time was remaining before the end of the test. He kind of enjoyed seeing the students squirm a little bit, and he was so busy kind of meandering around the room making sure nobody cheated and that everybody knew just how much time they had left before they might fail this test. Since he was doing all that, he just told students as they finished, just throw your test up on top of the desk in the front of the room. He'll sort it out later. It made quite a mess. Because remember, there are several hundred students in the class, several hundred final tests sitting on the desk. Well during this particular final there is a student who he entered this test knowing that they needed he needed to get a really good grade on that test to pass the class so uh he knew that he was pretty good at calculus as long as he wasn't rushed And of course, there's this professor standing in front of of all the students yelling out every once in a while how much time is left, kind of pacing and and putting pressure on them. And so he decided, you know what, I'm not going to let this get to me. I need to get a good grade. And so he just ignored the professor. So when the professor said, pencils down, time's up, submit your, your Scantron sheets and all the work you've done to the piles at the front of the room on the desk, the student just ignored him. Five minutes went by, and the professor kind of stood there and paced, looking at the student, going, what is he doing? Then 10 minutes came, and then 10 turned into 20 minutes, and the professor decided, you know what, we're going to see how long this goes. He's saying this to himself, and says, you know I'm just going to make sure this student fails when they turn in their test. So 20 minutes turns into 40, and then almost an hour after the test was officially over, the student finally put down his pencil, and he gathered up his work, and he headed to the front of the hall to submit that last test. The whole time, that professor was watching him, waiting for the student to walk up. And the professor finally said and asked, "What are you doing? What do you think you're doing?" As a, stu- as a student stood in front of him and put down his exam on one of the fairly, a uh, little bit better stacked piles of papers. It was clear that the professor had waited only to give the student a hard time. And the student responded, well, I'm turning in my exam. And the professor responded, well, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. Your exam is now an hour late. You failed it. And consequently, I'll see you next term when you repeat my course. The student stood there and looked at the professor for a little bit and then smiled and said, do you know who I am? What? replied the professor gruffly, annoyed that the student was not sh- upset at all with what was happening, and the professor thought, well, how am I supposed to know who you are? You're just one of many students, and the student asked again, do you know what my name is? No, snarled the professor. I don't know who it, your name is, but you'll be repeating my course, and the student looked at the professor dead in the eyes and said slowly, I didn't think you knew my name, and so he picked up his test, and he lifted up one of the stacks of, of finished tests halfway, so it was in the middle of the big pile, and he shoved his t- neatly in the center of the stack and let it all fall back together, losing the test in the middle of the pile and just walked out of the classroom. The professor couldn't fail him because he didn't know which test it was. Interesting story. I don't recommend you try it, but I know that tests, some people like tests and some people don't. Some people really struggle with tests. Some people stress over them and some seem to love them. Yeah, some people do love tests. It's a way to prove what they know. I've never been one who really loves tests. I I never really feel like I test very well. I get anxious during a test and and in that anxiousness I start to stress out and when I stress out I start to lose focus. Well, our text today in First John is full of tests. Now, I want to encourage those of you who stress over testing, who worry about failing a test or not getting, you know, these tests are not for a grade. You're not going to fail if you don't pass them. They don't earn you a better place in heaven. They don't garner God's approval. But rather, these tests are a way to check, to make sure you are in a healthy place in your relationship with God and with your fellow Christians. And the more that you and I can see ourselves, these tests are completed and we're We're doing okay. The more we see that in our lives, the more we will flourish with God. Now, today is our last week in the letter of 1 John. When we started this study, I encouraged you to look for a phrase that flows all throughout the letter. It's a phrase that's so simple, you might just skip over it. It's these couple of words, this is. It shows up all over the place in in 1 John. And in our text today, it shows up several times. And it shows up with a couple other words. This is how we know. And what is it that we're supposed to know? That God is in us and that we are in God. That is to say, that our relationship with God is healthy and growing the way that it should be. John gives us a series of tests or checks, so we can know that we are where we are supposed to be with God. It's about six tests that you will find in our text today. These tests remind you and me who we are as we follow Jesus. Remember, John was initially writing to a church that was divided. Some of its people thought they had found a better way to follow God. They thought that they were superior. They thought they had a better connection to God than others. So, they were demeaning others. They were looking down their noses at their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they were judging them. And these followers who thought they had all things all figured out, they made extra tests on how a person could draw near to God, and they, it was causing a problem. Now, last week in our time in 1 John chapter 4, we learned that God is the source of love. It's something you probably already knew, but to hear it and really dig into it is important to do. And and we read in 1 John 4.10, the very core of love, where it says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, perhaps hearing about God as a source of love, hearing that, you've been wondering how you can know if you are living and showing that sort of love instead of, you know, our world proposes all kinds of counterfeit love. So, living with godly love is really a byproduct of a deeper goal, and that is a healthy relationship with God. And so, I want you to hear this. You and I are made for and called to life with God. You and I are to abide in God and He in us. And the text we read today is full of little checks, things to look at to say, okay, am I really living up? Am I really doing what I am made for? Living a life with God. It's not as complicated as you think. Jesus has done the work. What's required of you is that you would invite Jesus into your life, that you would confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that he atoned for your sins on the cross. But it's so simple that many of us doubt if we're really living in God and he in us. And so, a lot of Christians walk around going, I don't know if I've really got this. So, John gives us some tests to check ourselves so we can be assured. So let's read the text. Over and over, John tells us how we know God is in us and we in him. And whenever he does, he gives us a test. With that phrase, he gives us a test. So look for the statements that reflect our relationship with God. And near them you'll find those tests. So the text today is from 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 through 21, and it reads like this This is how we know that we live in Him. And he in us, he has given us his spirit. And if we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his son to be the savior of the world, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us, so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love Because he first loved us. And whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they can see, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So, I want to take a minute here, as we have read that text, and talk about a concept, abiding with God. That word abide is one that appears often in the New Testament. In the Greek, that word is meno, and it speaks about where you live, remaining in a place, being held in a place, almost bound into a place. Now, something interesting happens with the word meno in the New Testament. It's used 102 times but more than half of those occurrences are in the writings of John. So, of all the New Testament, John uses them more than anyone else. When you go to the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Book of Revelation, you'll find 56 occurrences of the word meno. And for John, that word "meno" really talks about God abiding in you, and you abiding in God. That you find your home in God, and He has His home in you. That you are living in God, and He is living in you. That that He resides in you. And so, there's verses all, all throughout John. We just read a couple of them here. You could read uh, John six chapter, uh, verse 56, where Jesus is talking about his body and his blood. And it was a hard saying for many of the crowd to hear, but he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. That remains there is that word meno, find a place of residing in me. In uh, John chapter 15, verse five, uh, you read this, Jesus speaks and he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing remaining, abiding, if you want to say it, menowing in God is critical for your life and your well-being. We must do it. Andrew Murray uh, writes these words when he talks about abiding in Christ. He says, during the life of Jesus on earth, the word he chiefly used when speaking of of, of the relations of the disciples to himself was, follow me. When about to leave for heaven, he gave them a new word in which, they, in which their more intimate and spiritual union with himself and glory should be expressed. And that chosen word was, abide in me. Now, certainly we must continue to follow Jesus, but we should note that he did call us to abide, live in him, find our place in him, and stay in him. J.I. Packer and Carolyn Nystrom in their book, Abiding in Christ, write these words, Abide is an old English word for remain, stay steady, and keep your position. What it means to abide in Christ, that is, always to be resting on Him, anchored to Him, fixed in Him, drawing from Him, continually connected and in touch with Him. The abiding life is the abundant life. Now, in our text today, the word meno, abide, appears four times. John wants our attention and for us to have confidence, knowing that we are right with God, that we are abiding in Him. And so, he gives us six checks, six tests to see, yes, this is happening, so I know I am abiding in God. And so, I want to cover those six tests today, not to stress you out, but to hopefully give you confidence that you are with God the way that you should be. And the first test that he gives you, it's there in verse 13, he says, um, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. Test number one is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, verse 13 gives a statement. It has two sides to it. Like, two sides. You can think of a scale that balances an up and a down till the weights are even. And so, on the first side is the phrase, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. And the second side is John's test or proof. This is how we know and this is, this is what it is. This is what we do to know. And it says, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit in your life is proof that you are abiding in God and he in you. Beware of anyone who is absent, has the Holy Spirit absent from their life. Beware of yourself if the Holy Spirit is absent from your life. But the presence of the Holy Spirit was critical all throughout the, the life of the early church. And in particular, it was critical at a pivotal pivotal moment in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 10, God is working on Peter, showing him that the atoning work of Jesus is not just for the Jewish people, but for the Gentiles, meaning it's for everybody. See, at this point, most of the people who have become Christians are Jewish. You've had Samaritans starting to become Christian. You've had maybe one Or two Gentiles, but really very few. And Peter is not so sure who's allowed to be a follower of Jesus. And so then God works on Peter. Peter starts preaching to the Gentiles in chapter 10, and we're told that they believe, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. The Holy Spirit is the sign that yes, God is in these now. He's with these people. And so we can read a verse like Acts chapter 10, verse 47, where Peter says, surely no one can stand in their way of being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. The Holy Spirit was proof that God was in them and they were in him. Now, in that case of Acts chapter 10, it says that one of the examples of the Holy Spirit was speaking in tongues, but the gifts of the Spirit are far more than just tongues. Most often, the Spirit's presence in a Christian is not what we would call a miraculous gift that can be seen, but it's a transformational work in your heart and your mind and in your character that often goes unnoticed, but we should see it as a miracle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this in the book, Cost of Discipleship, "'Fruit is always the miraculous, the created. It is never the result of willing, but always a growth. Fruit of the Spirit is a gift of God, and only He can produce it. They who bear it know as little about it as the tree knows of its fruit. They know only the power of Him on whom their life depends.'" So, if you're wondering, do I have the Holy Spirit in my life? Don't discount the transformational work of the Spirit conforming you to Jesus and growing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. 1 John chapter 3.24 echoes this Spirit being present in your life. It says this in 1 John 3.24, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us? We know it by the Spirit He gave us. That's the first test. Second test is your testimony of Jesus. You can find this in verse 15 of our text today. The second test that John gives is that of our testimony about Jesus. Uh, verse 15 tells us that acknowledging Jesus is the Son of God, it, it's always that, that Let me start over. Verse 15 tells us that acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God allows God to abide in us. And that's true. And I talked at the beginning about how you become a Christian. You must confess that Jesus is is Lord, believe in what he did upon the cross. That testimony allows God to move in. But testimony involves our words and our actions, and with those, both of those, we proclaim Jesus as Lord, Jesus as God's Son, and Jesus as our atonement. Or, you know what the other side of it is? Sometimes our words and our actions are not proclaiming those things. And so perhaps the challenge for you to consider is this if someone were to look at the way you live, and the words you speak, and what you tell about the story of your life, Could they tell that you trust, that your trust is rooted beyond the things and events of this world and that your trust is rooted in Jesus, King Jesus? That's a challenge. Third test that John gives is that we are to live in God's love. We're living in God's love. It's there in verse 16. Now, this test has several parts to it, and I, I debated, how do I do this? And so, this is how I'm going to give you six tests today, is is this third one, I think, actually has several parts. So, I'm going to break those out into other tests. Uh, but each part of those others that we're going to get to in a moment are sourced in living in God's love. We must be fueled by God's love. We spoke about this last week. God is the source of love. Now, commentator Marion Thompson writes these words, if we want to know what love is, we must let God define it. So, we have to live in God's love. We must live out of God's love and from His love. Too many people are living life trying to love without first receiving God's love. This world is full of people trying to tell everyone what love is, but they've never allowed God to love them. They've never received it. They've never acknowledged it. They've never known what it really is. Verse 19 of our text today tells us that God loves us first, and then we can love. Then we can know what love is. So, God has to come first, and so we have to live out of his love. That's the third test. Are you living out of God's love? Are you letting His love define love in your life? Are you letting His love come first? Or are you just adding it after the fact? Now, the next three tests help give some shape to what living in God's love looks like. And uh, The next one, I'll call it test four, find it in verse 17, is that we have confidence in judgment. Confidence and love are tied very closely together. We can have confidence in the face of final judgment because love tells us that we have a relationship or God abiding in us. Now, confidence is a theme throughout 1 John, and then there are several scriptures we can read there. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And 1 John 3.21 says, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And what we read already today, John 4.17, this is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. In uh, 1 John 5.14, we read this, This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will. He hears us. God abiding in you and you in God will produce confidence. In 1 John 4:17 that confidence is during the judgment of Christ and it makes sense that you can have confidence in that final judgment for the Christian the blood of Christ has changed that judgment from something to be worried about to the joy of the eternity of heaven. How do you feel when you carry the idea of judgment? Are you confident? Or are you fearful? That's the test. The fifth test is similar to confidence, but it has to do more with fear than confidence. It has to do with fear getting pushed out of the life of a Christian. So that fifth test is fear displaced. It's there in verse 18. William Barclay says this, When love comes, fear goes. In other words, in other words, in God's love, living in God's love, allowing God's love to be in your life, having it move in, doesn't leave any room for fear. The longer we live from God's love and in God's love, the less room there is for fear. It's been said that fear begins where faith ends. I had to think about that statement for a while. And for some of us, that might be very frustrating to hear those words, where fear begins, faith ends. You might say, well, there's nothing wrong with my faith. How dare you say my faith has come up short? And you know, I I am a person who deals with worry, and I I can tell you, when I feel fear, (laughs) it's because my trust... I trust my concern more than I do the promises of God. And and yeah, I have to be honest. When I am experiencing fear, I have to stop myself and go, ah, I'm not running on faith now. I'm running on something else or putting my faith in the wrong place. Now, fear does have a function. God built fear into us. It's a warning signal. Something bad is about to happen. Stop what you're doing. That's a warning. But there's a big difference between using fear as a warning signal and letting fear dominate your life. Fear, as a master, it will never let you rest. It will never fill you with joy. It will never let you feel secure. Henry Ward Beecher wrote these words, If a man harbors any sort of fear, it percolates through all his thinking, it damages his personality, and makes him a landlord to a ghost. And Rudyard Kipling wrote these words, Of all the liars in the world, sometimes the worst are our own fears. God invites you to his rest, his joy, his security, his peace, his confidence. He doesn't invite you to fear. He invites you to leave fear behind. You know, fear is also a very poor decision maker. Just about every decision I have made out of fear has turned out badly. Decisions made calmly in response to the warning of fear are better. Decisions made out of the leading of God are best. You know, fear is also a poor motivator. I know that hell is real. The Bible tells us this. But God is not trying to motivate us towards himself with the threats of hell, but by the expression of the love of Jesus. The warning of hell might get your attention but I've never met a person who thrived in their relationship with God purely because they were afraid. So, be careful how you use fear. and Be careful how you let fear live in your life. A relationship built on fear, on threats of what might happen will not succeed. Using fear to motivate your children or to motivate yourself does not build long-term character or relationships. Well what about fearing the Lord you might say if if perfect love casts out fear doesn't the bible say we fear the lord yes it does the bible talks repeatedly about fearing god proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 is one of those classic verses it says the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction we are to fear the lord fear god but this is not a terror we heed the warning God is supreme, and you and I are not. We must re- realize and respect our place before God. Marianne Thompson writes again to know that we are forgiven for our sin, loved in our weakness, saved by his mercy, destined for fellowship with God, all because we are supremely valued by God, that is to know the perfect love that drives fear away. Let's go to the final test in our text today. And it's one that we hear about all the time in our culture now, and it's love for others, or in this case, love for the fellow Christian. It is more specific. Now, John has addressed loving your neighbor all kinds of places, in his Gospels, in the book of Revelation. It's it's all over the place. Now, he's highlighting the pure incompatibility that so many Christians try to live with Saying that you love God and hating a person, especially a fellow Christian. And John says, that makes you a liar. Sarah in verse 20 and 21. Love is perfected, not in your understanding it better, not in experiencing it, but in your expressing it. Verse 17 tells us, this is how love is made complete in us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. You're thinking, Josh, what are you doing? You just read that passage, but look how it ends. In this world, we are like Jesus. And I tell you, we've already read God is love, and Jesus is love. And we've been told in verse 10, this is love, that God sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is an unrelenting offering of redemption. And we are called to live in the same way. Do you live for the redemption of others, to restore others, to bring out the best in others, to bring others to the Lord? There are no shortages of messages about loving your neighbor. But I will add this. John tells this church he's writing to, and he tells us that they are to love their brothers and sisters. That means fellow Christians. But he doesn't give any other qualification. He doesn't say, love them until they make a mistake or they commit a sin. He he does not say, love them until they disagree with you. He doesn't even tell the church to stop loving the problem people who are trying to disrupt and take over the church. He warns against them, but he never prescribes to stop loving them. He even states the other part of it, which is if you're angry with them, if you really hate them, that is not compatible. And the days that we live in today, in our times right now, these days are marked by the action of taking sides. There are so many issues that everybody has an opinion about. And anymore when a person encounters someone who doesn't agree with them, The response is, oh, you're not on my side. I'm going to be careful around you. I'm going to shut you out. I'm going to shout them down or I'm going to write them off. If we are honest, hate flares up very quickly in our times. By all means, stand for truth. Remain unswerving in your pursuit of Christ. Do all you can to do the work of God's kingdom in this world and bring that kingdom about. But do not let hate become a part of your your vocabulary. Do not let hate become the way you conduct yourselves towards others. Live a life marked and motivated by God's love. How else will anyone be able to test and see that God abides in you and you in God? So, we started with that phrase, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. And John gives us all those tests. He says, the Holy Spirit is at work in you. You're going to testify about Jesus. You're going to live in God's love. You face judgment with confidence. Fear is replaced by God in your life, and you love those around you, especially when it would be easier to be angry with them. I know the tests are never fun, but these tests should fill us with confidence as Christians, and they should warn us if we need to recommit our life to Christ. And so, I challenge you, where are you at? How are you doing with those tests? Is there one that you think, oh man, I got to figure this out? Seek the Lord. Let Him do a new work in you. I want to close our time. It's a prayer I'm sure I have used in the last year. It's one that I have been looking at more and more, and I just love the words of it. It's written by William Temple, and I just think it's just a simple little prayer that's so good for committing to the Lord, and it goes like this. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will. And always to your glory and the welfare of your people through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go with Jesus.